Well, we're not going to have a children's church this morning, so the kids are welcome to stay in. Uh, I hope uh, that it's helpful. As I sent out the bulletin this week, I put the title, Where Are You Going to Run To?, uh, out there in the public, and, and one of the elders sent me some, uh, uh, some YouTube videos of 1950s folk groups uh, singing the song Sinner Man. I don't know if you've heard that song. It's where it comes from. <clears throat> the version that I'm uh, more familiar with is Nina Simone. Uh, she was a troubled uh, folk singer, jazz singer, uh, but sang a very penetrating version of the song. It's a, it's a uh, scary song. Uh, it's a song about the judgment coming and the sinner man is trying to find refuge and he can't find refuge anywhere and he even goes to the Lord and the Lord won't receive him. Now, what's interesting about that is that there's biblical precedent for that notion. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus mentions that there will be people on that day who will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, and his response to them will be, I never knew you. Um, so that's one way to apprehend uh, the judgment, uh, and maybe it is the central way to apprehend the judgment, but this passage uh, talks about something different. Uh, it talks about seeking refuge uh, and finding refuge, about seeking mercy and finding mercy. Uh, I don't know if you remember uh, back uh, in November when uh, Dan Anderson preached uh, the sermon on the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, I have a great memory of it. I actually uh, had found a book in my library, one of those books. This is something that uh, pastors do. Maybe this is something that bad pastors do. I buy books uh, that I know I can't read and I stick them on the shelf for an opportune time. Uh, but I had such a book on my shelf called The Remarkable Genius of Jesus. And I pulled it off my shelf maybe the day before Dan preached and picked it up. And it was a lot about... Um, uh, Luke 15, and, uh, and it's, a, it's an interesting book to read. It's a little bit detailed, it's a little bit scholarly, um, but pulling out the, um, really just the genius of Jesus uh, and what he's doing in that parable of the prodigal son, uh, but he also makes the link uh, to chapter 16. And what's interesting is you know that these passages, the way we understand chapters and verses are artificial. Uh, that the Greek manuscripts are just continuous, contiguous. Uh, they just flow one from the other. Uh, but this parable follows very closely uh, the parable of the lost sons. Um, the break between chapters 15 and 16 is minimal. Uh, he also said to the disciples, is the way verse 1 starts, um, both parables have to do with rascals who squander property. In fact, the same word is used in chapter 15 as in chapter 18 for the squandering or the wasting of property. Uh, both betray a trust, and they offer no excuses for their misbehavior. They're not defensive about it. They don't say, oh, I meant something completely different. They don't try to get out of it. Uh, but both throw themselves on the mercy of their superiors, and both expect amazing mercy. And the parables are also similar in that they uh, end inconclusively. You don't know uh, what happens to the elder brother. Uh, he's left outside uh, stewing in his own juices, I guess. And you don't know what happens uh, to this dishonest manager. Uh, 
but I just want you to see the link between the two of them uh, before we dive in. So if you have Bibles, turn uh, to Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read uh, 13 verses. I'm going to uh, take the paragraph that follows uh, the parable and, and see if we can make a connection between the two. Uh, but here it is. He, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And thus far the reading of God's word. Well, I don't know if you felt it as I was reading it, but this is a problematic parable. Uh, a lot of different interpretations of it, a lot of different ways to try to, try to figure out what it means. Uh, a couple of the most prominent biblical scholars in the last century said it's just beyond our ability to understand what's going on here. You cannot uh, figure out what's taking place. Um, it's problematic because the guy that is being highlighted, at least it seems, the guy that's being highlighted is an unsavory character. Um, but I do want to mention that unsavory characters are not uh, completely absent from the parables of Jesus. Uh, there is an unjust judge in chapter 18, who figures into the point that Jesus is trying to make. Uh, there is a, a friend who is approached at midnight uh, for help with hospitality, and he's grumpy about it. Uh, and there is this interesting guy uh, in the Gospel of Matthew who finds a treasure in a field and covers it up and goes and negotiates a deal to buy the field without awareness of the treasure and then gets the treasure. So, there are unsavory characters uh, in the parables. Um, the unjust judge eventually gives uh, justice to the woman, 
the friend uh, at midnight is able to eventually give bread uh, to the one who asks. And, and it fits into a pattern of uh, parable uh, having to do with how much more. You know, if, if this is what happens in real life, how much more can you understand the grace of God? So if the woman gets justice from the judge, how much more is God going to give you justice when you ask for him? If the friend is able to get bread at midnight, how much more is God going to give you bread when you ask? And here, if the dishonest manager receives mercy from the rich man, how much more will you receive mercy if you rely on it? So what I want to do is to say that I think our focus should not be so much on the dishonest manager, uh, but rather on the, the magnanimity and the mercy of the rich man. There's two things to note about him. One is that he's very rich. The numbers indicate a farm 25 times the size of a normal family farm. Uh, I think it's 1,000 barrels of oil, and a thousand, or maybe it's, I think it's 800 barrels of oil and 1,000 bushels of wheat. So it's, a, it's an immense family farm. Uh, secondly, and more importantly, his forbearance is remarkable. Again, I'm relying a little bit. I've, I've told some of you about a treasured resource of mine, a guy named Kenneth Bailey. Uh, was, I think he was raised in Beirut, uh, and he stayed teaching there at the university. He was a biblical scholar. And, uh, and the cornerstone of his unique take was that he would go and interview Bedouin tribesmen and say, here, I want to read you this parable from the Gospel of Luke. What do you think of it? Uh, so he would ask people who were commoners uh, living out in the desert, shepherds keeping their flocks. And, uh, and here's what he said. Uh, it was remarkable to the people who heard this parable that the, that the manager was only fired and not arrested. You know, there the other passages in the Bible, you know where this is. In Matthew chapter 5, there's also a section in chapter Luke where it talks about if you're at odds, if you're in debt, Settle the account quickly before your opponent comes and arrests you and has you thrown in jail. And I tell you, you won't get out until you pay the last penny. Um, when, when people understood, were read, were read this parable, they were said, why was the guy not arrested? Why was he only fired? There's some mercy, some magnanimity involved uh, in that. Secondly, he gives the manager some wiggle room so that the manager can go and negotiate these deals. Rather than saying, give me the books right now, rather than saying, you know, I'm going to have my other people in my household accompany you to get the books so I make sure you don't uh, enact any funny business, uh, he, he leaves some wiggle room uh, so that these debts can be reconfigured. And then lastly, of course, he acknowledges the shrewdness of the manager and does not challenge or cancel the newly negotiated contracts. So in a sense, what the, what the manager is doing, this is the way I want us to see it, is that he's saying, I know that my master, my boss, is a kind man. I know that he is a merciful man. And he's shrewd, he's tricky, he is dishonest, his dishonesty is not being praised. It's not as though the man says, um, 
I praise the dishonesty of a shrewd manager. But he says rather, I praise the shrewdness of a dishonest manager, but this manager knows where to find mercy. And he says, I'm going to be, I'm going to create this situation where my master's going to kind of be stuck. And he is stuck, uh, but being stuck, he lets the guy get away with it. Uh, one of the things that Bailey points out, that this uh, has to do with a small community, and once one of these debtors has had his debt reduced, that word gets on the streets very quickly, and people are excited about uh, the way that the steward the way that the manager has made it happen, but they're also very impressed with the magnanimity of the rich man. And they begin to celebrate, and they begin to lift their glasses in praise of the rich man for his mercy, for his generosity, for his willingness uh, to reduce these debts. The rich man is kind of stuck, isn't he? He could say, hold on a second. Uh, those renegotiated deals were illegitimate. I'm canceling them. I'm calling it back. We're going back to the original deal. Forget about all this nonsense of debt being reduced. Rather, he lets it go. And he says, you know, the guy's a pretty smart guy, pretty shrewd. And what's interesting is that verse 8, and this is what you really need to scratch your head over, is that he says... Uh, the sons, Jesus says in his assessment of this, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation uh, than the sons of light. Uh, wouldn't the sons of light be better disposed to understand the mercy of God? Uh, is there a way in which the mercy of God is given short shrift in the minds of the sons of light? And this is a challenge to all of us. You know, do you give the mercy of God short shrift in your own life? Do you imagine that God's mercy is somehow truncated, somehow limited? Somehow it's the kind of thing that uh, can't really be relied on, but rather needs to be augmented by your good deeds. Is the mercy of God to be trusted or not? So hold that thought. And let's step away and let's take a look at some of the lessons that are learned coming out of this. Because uh, Jesus flows right into, in verse 9, uh, some advice about the way to handle unrighteous wealth. Uh, he basically says, use your wealth uh, in such a way that you will be benefited eternally. Use your wealth in such a way that you know that it's temporary. Uh, as you know that this entire world is temporary. Uh, Luther admonished uh, folks that were listening to him to treat life and your housing uh, and your uh, real estate uh, as though you were a traveler staying in hotels. Uh, Luther said, limit your necessities, divide the rest with the poor. Uh, I think that uh, uh, one of the other Puritan scholars picked up exactly on that as well, saying, my advice to you would be to decide what your necessities are and limit those and then take the rest of your disposable wealth and divide it in half with the poor. And really the aim is to be free from the tug of wealth. Some people are going to get wealthy. Work is a blessing. Some will be skilled in their work and consequently make a lot of money. 
And that's a gift from God. That's not to be decried. Uh, But the allure of wealth, Jesus is very clear about this elsewhere in the gospel. The allure of wealth will kill you. The allure of wealth has the potential to make you unfit for the kingdom of God. The allure of wealth can, the way Jesus expressly says it, can choke out the gospel. It can be like a weed that chokes out a plant. It can choke out the gospel. Wealth is not universally condemned in Scripture, but it's warned against strenuously. It's good for us as kind of a year-end assessment of where we are spiritually to think about how we're using wealth. Not every wealthy person should get rid of it, but again, we should be aware of the capacity that it has to choke out the gospel. Wealth is called in this passage unrighteous. Twice. Twice wealth is called unrighteous. So what are you daydreaming about? How do you imagine your future? Uh, Those of us who are moving towards retirement, how do we imagine our retirement? How do we think about wealth in that context? Uh, What constantly springs up in your conversations? What captures your imagination? Uh, Do you spend a lot of time imagining what you're going to buy, what you're going to acquire, how you're going to invest, what kind of deals you're going to make. Jesus says, on the contrary, make sure that there are going to be a lot of people in heaven who were objects of your generosity. Make sure that there are a lot of people in the next life who are going to be able to say good things about the way in which you were generous. Uh, In fact, what Jesus says, and this is what's interesting, in verse 12, or in verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? If you've not been faithful in in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Uh, In fact, your wealth is a test of sorts. Uh, Can you be trusted with true wealth? You are being tested with your physical wealth to see if you can handle real wealth, true wealth. Now, the principle of stewardship is that you don't own any of it. You're only taking care of it. You're only taking care of something that's been given to you. And you are going to be assessed on how well you took care of this wealth that is being lent you by God. God has lent you your wealth. How are you going to handle it? And are you worthy of greater wealth? Uh, The principle of stewardship is that God owns everything. He also claims to own the tithe. Uh, There's a place in the Old Testament where withholding the tithe is tantamount to theft, tantamount to robbing God. Um, But more than that, you're responsible to demonstrate the values of the kingdom with what you have. And again, the sense is that the world is temporary and passing away. And the threat is serious. If you won't be faithful with money, spiritual riches will be kept from you. That's a hard thing to understand, isn't it? If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Now, a lot of you, a lot of us, struggle with spiritual issues. And we cry out to the Lord. We want wisdom, we want perspective, we want boldness. We want patience. 
We want compassion. All of these things that occupy our minds when we're in our right minds and we cry out to the Lord and say, please give me these things. Uh, Please give me the grace of the Holy Spirit that I might grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. That I might bear the fruit of the Spirit. We all pray those things. We want those. But I think the implication here is these may be withheld because you can't be trusted with them. And you're being tested with physical wealth. How are you handling your physical wealth? Are you handling it in a righteous way? Are you handling it in a way that reflects the values of the kingdom? And it comes down to this. In the end, you cannot serve God and money. You can't do it. I know it's uh, near and dear to the heart of the American way to say, maybe I could do it. Give me a chance. We won't even talk about daydreaming about winning the lottery. Winning the lottery is a sore subject for me. Uh, The lottery is bad business. I think you know that. It's horrific. Uh, It destroys people's lives. Um, But but more than that, it destroys your mind uh, because you imagine acquiring wealth by doing nothing. And any wealth that you would acquire by the lottery is simply because many other millions have lost their shirts in playing the lottery. I know it's not completely proper for a Presbyterian minister, but on occasion, I would stop at a convenience store on the way to church on Sunday morning to get a soft drink. And it used to bug me that I'd have to wait in line behind 20 people who were buying lottery tickets if the lottery got up to a certain level. Um, You cannot serve God and money. You cannot pursue wealth and make it your aim and your goal and serve God at the same time. Both are masters that require devotion. And it's a constant temptation to think that both can be served. That's where Jesus ends the instruction on wealth. But I want to get back to the main point of the passage. You know, the main point of the passage in the parable, the main point of the parable is this mercy of the Father. And I really think that in a sense we could have made The paragraph division between verses 8 and 9. And you get back to that first point. And the point is that there is a judgment coming. I mean, really, that's what the biblical scholars do with this. They say that what's happened is that the manager has been exposed. And in in biblical teaching and in the, the teaching of Jesus and in his ministry... You know, there's always this focus that the day of the Lord is upon them. The day of the Lord has come, and the day of the Lord is also coming. And when the day of the Lord comes, in what shape will you be? And this dishonest manager finds himself in bad shape. And that's really the, the point of the passage. What are you going to do if you find yourself in bad shape? And, and in fact, there's no if about that. And I remember this wonderful Christmas essay by Annie Dillard. I don't know if anyone's heard her name before. Uh, but she tells this story about uh, being out to supper with her parents on Christmas Eve and coming home and taking off her coat and warming her feet. And then all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. The door swings open and she hears, ho, ho, ho. And her parents shout out, look who's here, look who's here. And she turns around and sees that it's Santa Claus, and she bolts up the stairs. 
And she says, like any reasonable person, I was terrified of Santa Claus. He was this old guy that you could not see, but who nevertheless saw you. And he knew when you'd be good, when he knew when you'd been good, and he knew when you'd been bad. And she said, and I had been bad. And her parents cried out to her, please come, please come. And she wouldn't budge. The day is coming. And if you have a real sensibility, a real sense of your actual spiritual condition, you know that that day is on its way. And what Jesus is saying here is, what are you going to do about it? Uh, On whose mercy will you rest? Will you know where to find mercy on that day? And will you avail yourself of that mercy even now? The interesting thing is, just a couple of verses later, Tim will get to this next week. Uh, In verse 15, Jesus says to the Pharisees, and see, it's interesting the way all this flows. I kind of wonder if we should have, I should have stopped with verse 8 today and let Tim take 9 and then all the way through uh, to the end of 17. Uh, But after this, you cannot serve God and money, uh, Luke says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those, he doesn't say who are greedy. He doesn't say you are those who hoard their wealth. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You know, the message of the gospel is very clear, it's very simple, it's very easy. In light of the coming judgment, repent and believe the good news. That's it. And we can kind of go in and unpack each one of those words. Uh, But it's simply that, you repent and you believe the good news. And what do you repent of? Well, again... I think that Dan was very clear about this and in a very helpful way, you know, that to repent of bad behavior, well, that's all well and good, but that's not really what Jesus is talking about. I mean, if you are behaving badly, stop it. I'll tell you that. If you're being dishonest, stop it. Start being honest. If you're being unfaithful, stop it. Start being faithful. Those are all important things. They're good things. But the real repentance is to repent of the self-justification. To repent of this sense of being able to justify yourselves before God. I'm involved in a situation right now that uh, is untenable. It's a little bit appalling. Uh, But it builds on a commitment on the part of one or more to justify themselves. And, 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 And the love of God has flown out the window. And so when Jesus is saying repent and believe the good news, he's saying won't you stop trying to justify yourself? Won't you stop trying to make a plan by which you think you will appear before God and have him pat you on the back? Uh, Rather, Jesus is saying appeal to his mercy. You can't make too much of God's mercy. It can't be done. It's mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And finding that mercy is really life transformative. That, see, that's the, the, the wild thing about the gospel. You know, we understand that, that what we want is to be good people. We understand that what we want is to uh, be able to stand before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But how does that happen? 
You know, does it happen through self-justifying tendencies? Well, that's what the Pharisees were doing. And they found themselves absolutely at odds with Jesus. Absolutely at odds with him. They were the ones who were, the, you know, at least in their own eyes, the public display of the righteousness of God. They were exactly the opposite of that because they sought to justify themselves. So here, this is just simply it. The mercy of God is far more than you imagine it to be. My uh, mentor, Jack Miller, used to say, cheer up. And you've probably heard this before. Uh, a guy has written a, a biography of Jack, and he's entitled it, Cheer Up. Uh, but Jack used to say, cheer up. You're a much worse sinner than you imagine yourself to be. And then he would say, cheer up. Because the mercy of God is far more expansive, far higher, far deeper, far wider uh, than you imagine it to be. And I think that's what's going on in this passage. That if you will rely on God's mercy, if you will repair to his mercy, if you will be honest about your sins, about your shortcomings, about your flaws, don't seek to hide them, be honest about them and take them to him, you will find that his mercy receives you gladly, happily. You can see again the connection with the parable of the prodigal son. This party breaks out when this scoundrel comes home. And even though he tries to justify himself, the father won't let him justify himself. So that's basically the point of the sermon. Uh, God's mercy is more than you know, than you expect it to be. Uh, stop pretending. Stop play acting. Stop pretending that you're righteous. Uh, recline yourself on the mercy of God. And you will see the most remarkable transformation of your life in the new year. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are very grateful uh, for your mercy. We're very grateful for your goodness. We need the Holy Spirit to see the way it is uh, our instinct. It is part of the residue of the flesh that in your wisdom you have left in us to truncate that mercy, to imagine of it a small thing. And I pray that you would give us grace, especially today at the close of the year and tonight as we reflect and tomorrow as we wake up to a new year uh, to uh, determine uh, that we will discover more of your mercy next year. And we will lean into it, that we will not only know and believe, but rely on the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for those who uh, don't know you, uh, that you would give the Holy Spirit, that you would uh, open up a place in their sensibilities, in their vision, in their hearing, uh, so that they might know the truth of the beauty of the gospel. Father, I pray for those who are simply playing a game and uh, are the masters of masquerade and are simply pretending. Uh, I pray that they would not pretend anymore but be honest and straightforward. And again, lean into uh, this magnanimity of yours, this mercy, this steadfast love. Father, because that's the way that you are honored. That's the way that you're glorified. You're not glorified in our 
pretended innocence, uh, but you are glorified in our redemption. And, uh, and in that, we are satisfied. And in that, uh, our neighbors are blessed. And in that, the city becomes um, a light that is not hidden under a bushel, uh, but rather held out for all to see. Uh, we ask you all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.